Well, one day a man called the church office and he said, I want to speak to the head hog at the trough. Now, the receptionist said, I'm sorry, who are you trying to reach? And he said, the head hog at the trough, you know, the guy in charge. And the receptionist said, sir, if you mean our pastor, you're going to need to show a little more respect. You can call him the pastor or the reverend. And uh, the man said, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry I bothered you. I, uh, I just closed a big business deal and I made a lot of money. And I wanted to thank God by giving $10,000 to the church. And upon hearing this, the receptionist said, I want you to hold the line. I think the big pig just walked in the door. <laughs> now, last week in Luke chapter 15, we saw that there was a man who was longing to eat out of a pig's trough. And as we looked at the story of the prodigal son, this was a man who had hit bottom. He had wasted his life. He had wasted his father's resources. But then he came to his senses and he returned home to his father. He came home to God. And as we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 16, we come to another parable that deals with wasted resources. And as we look at this parable today, what we're going to find is it's not so much about the stuff that is mentioned. What this parable focuses on is how instead we spend our lives in the things that have been entrusted to us. I want you to look with me at Luke chapter 16. In verses 1 through 9, it says, uh, now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do, since my master is taking the stewardship away, away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I will do. This is what I will do when I am removed from the stewardship so that they will receive me into their home. And he summoned each of his master's debtors, and he began saying to them, to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may also receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, as we look at this parable, it creates problems for many people. Because what it appears here is that Jesus is commending this dishonest man's behavior. But in order to understand what this parable really is saying, we need to go deeper into the background. What we find here is that this, this master is not commending stealing. But instead, what Jesus is telling us here is that we can learn something good from this bad man's example. As we begin by unpacking this passage, let me first define what a steward is. A steward is someone who is given care or control of something that belongs to someone else. A steward is given care or control of something that belongs to someone else. And he or she does not own it, but has the responsibility of managing it in a way that follows the instructions or fulfills the purpose of the master. Now, that doesn't mean that a steward doesn't get to enjoy uh, the benefits of something while they're doing it, but it means that this manager ultimately understands they are not the owner. 
I mean, think about the times you've gotten on an airplane. Flight attendants used to be called stewardesses. Or if you've ever gotten on a cruise ship, there is a steward on board that is there to take care of the passengers. And nobody would say that the flight attendants or the steward on a ship owns the plane or the ship. We all understand a company owns it and they are simply an employee managing those resources for the benefit of the passengers while they are on that journey. And when it comes to us as Christians, what we need to understand is we are stewards of what God has given to us, and we are to use them in ways that will help people prepare for the ultimate journey that they will be on on the way home to heaven. As we think about this definition of stewardship, Ron Blue gives us this one. Stewardship is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. Stewardship is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. As Jesus tells this parable here, he says that there is an unrighteous steward who had began to use the master stuff more for his own enjoyment rather than the master's purposes. Verse 1 says there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. When I was going through seminary, I've told you before that one of the jobs I had was working as a police officer in Dallas. My wife also worked uh, many of those years while I was going through seminary. And the job that my wife had was a public school teacher in Highland Park, Texas. Highland Park, as some of you know, is a very affluent uh, city or town within the, the confines of the city of Dallas. And as Kim was teaching in this elementary school in Highland Park, uh, there was a wonderful family in this school that we got to know, and they, they liked my wife, and they heard I was in seminary, and they, they said, you know, we have a servant's quarter above our three-car garage. It was built for a live-in maid. We don't have one, and we'd love for you and your husband to live in this garage apartment for a minimal amount of rents, just covering the utilities that y'all use, and in exchange for a few stewardship duties. And the stewardship duties entailed uh, watching their three children and taking care of the house when the, the husband and wife needed to travel out of town. Now, whenever the parents would travel out of town, we would move from our 475-square-foot apartment into this two-story white-pillared mansion. And as we moved into the main house, Kim and I didn't think we owned the house, but we certainly enjoyed the house while we were living there. And when the parents would leave, they would leave an envelope that was filled with money. It often had three to four times the amount of money we could have used. There was a, a platinum credit card. There were the keys to the luxury cars that were in the garage below us. And the instructions were, enjoy yourself. Take care of the kids, take care of the house, go out to eat, go to the movies, do whatever it is that you want. Now, imagine if when the owners of the house returned, they found the envelope of money was empty, the credit card was filled with frivolous charges, and the neighbors reported that I had been peeling out up and down the road in their luxury cars, and we had been having wild parties while they were gone. What would have been the response of the owners? Probably what we see in verse 2. And he called him and said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. You see, what the man says here is, you've forgotten you are merely the manager. You are not the owner, these are not your things, and you've been misusing the resources that were entrusted to you. 
So get the books in order because you are gone. Now, finding himself in this position, verse 3 tells us, this steward said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking away the stewardship and I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg? And then in the next verses, we, we see where it appears this guy adds insult to injury because he starts to cook the books. He sets himself up for the future. Now, this is where people have a fit because they say, how can the master commend this guy for what he's doing? You know, what we think is, I wouldn't commend the guy, I would call the cops, right? But everybody in the story that hears it says, wow, this guy's sharp. This guy's shrewd. He's really good. Now, in order to understand this, we need to look at who the audience is, first of all. You see in verse 1, it says Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And then if you look at verse 14, you see another audience are the Pharisees. Because there it says that the Pharisees, as Jesus is telling this story, begin to grumble about Jesus. The religious leaders were masters, we've seen, who, who would take what God's law said and they would kind of figure out a way to game the system. So they would appear very righteous while doing what they wanted. When we think of what God's law says in relation to loaning things, this is what we find in Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. It says, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. Leviticus 25, 36 says, do not take usurious interest from him, but revere your God that your countrymen may live with you. Deuteronomy 23, 19 tells us, you shall not charge interest to your countrymen, interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You see, what the law said is, when there is a fellow Jew that is in need, you are to give the resources to them at cost. No interest to go with it. Now, if you're going to make a loan where there's this risk and there's no reward, you're kind of grumbling to yourself saying, why do I want to give it? Well, one is just understanding it's really not yours, it's God's, and God has entrusted you with it. Now, the Jews in that day figured out a way to game the system. There was a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. He lived at the, uh, in the first century, and he was a guy that told us all kinds of things that happened in that society. And this is what he tells us, is how the Jews came up with the way to appear righteous while gaming the system. In his writings, he says, when a contract is made, don't write it to say, I will pay Reuben 10 core of wheat on the first of Nisan and a core of wheat annually, and, and four core of wheat annually in addition. Instead, I say, write it to say, I owe Reuben 14 core of wheat. Now, a core of wheat was equal to about five bushels in our measurements, and Nisan is the month of April. So what he's saying is, don't write the contract to say, I will pay you back the 50 bushels of wheat in April that I, I borrowed, and then I will pay you 20 additional bushels in interest annually until the loan is wiped out. Instead, just go in and make the bill out to say, I owe you 70 bushels of wheat as if you gave me 70 bushels right up front. Do you see what you just did? Anybody looking at the contract says, oh, well, you know, the guy owes you 70. When in reality, God said, the guy owes you 50. Now, 
what the people in the parable knew, this first century Jewish audience is, this is what was going on. Everybody knew the game that was being played, which is why when Jesus comes in and tells this parable, revealing the little game they're playing, it says in verse 14, the Pharisees began to grumble because they were lovers of money. You see, they're not mad at the steward saying this guy's stealing. They're mad at Jesus because they say, he got us again. As we look at the parable here, uh, the master, you're thinking, well, if that's the case, why didn't the guy, when he fired him, you know, today in corporate America, when somebody's fired, what, what happens? Security shows up at the desk. They say, give us your keys, take your codes, fill this box, and we will escort you off the property. And you're thinking, why didn't the master just walk in and take the books? Well, again, remember, the game was you wanted to appear righteous. And so the master often did not know what was owed to anybody. That way, when a guy came and started grumbling and saying, hey, you're ripping me off by charging this interest, the guy would say, I don't know what you're talking about. Joseph keeps the books. You need to see Joseph if there's a question about your account. So when the master decides to let the guy go, he doesn't know who owes him what because he's hypocritically been blind to it so he can say, I'm doing what the law says. And so he has to tell Joseph, look, get the books together and bring them over. I need to know who owes me what, what you've done with my stuff. All the guy knew was the rainmaker wasn't making it rain as much as he should. Resources were being squandered. And so the, the steward says, this is what I'm going to do. The gravy train with the master is over. So I'm going to set up a new, you scratch my back, I'll scratch you, your back system. And so he calls in the first guy and he says, look. And, and you'll notice the interest rates vary here. And that's because based upon the value or the volatility of the commodity, they, ch they charge more. Oil, which took longer to grow and, and, and or, you know, olive trees that took centuries at times to really begin producing these things were very valuable, and it had a very short growing season. Wheat could be planted multiple times in a year. There was a barley harvest to back it up, so it had a lower interest. The oil had 100% interest. The wheat had a 20% interest in the story. But he calls each guy in, and he says, what do you owe? This, is, this was the original amount, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to remove the illegal interest, and you're going to pay back what you actually got. Now, if you're the person whose bill just drastically dropped, imagine you pull up to Valero to fill your car up and they say, oh, it's only 50% of what's on the pump. Are you going to be happy? You betcha. And so as each person watches their bill drop, they go, you're my new best friend. Hey, if you need anything, you call me. I'll take care of you. And the whole time, the master is watching these individuals come up to the counter, having their bills cut, and they're walking out whistling. And the master, with each stroke of the pen, is watching his ill-gotten gain go up in smoke. And all he can do is say, man, this guy is good. You know, it's like when I was a police officer. There was a time one day a drug dealer came up to me, and he said, look, this addict I just sold some drugs to ripped me off. Yeah. I said, really? You were, you were selling what kind of drug to who? Uh, never mind. I said, yeah, I thought so. And that's what happens here. I mean, if this guy goes to complain, hey, look, the steward is taking away the illegal interest that God said I can't. Who's he going to talk to? And so everybody is standing there going, man, he is between a rock and a hard place. This steward really is shrewd. 
Now, we can understand how the people in the day would say this guy is good, but we're wondering, why does Jesus commend this steward? Well, first, I want you to remember that technically the steward is not stealing. Jesus isn't commending the unrighteous behavior of the steward. Remember when Bill Clinton, President Clinton, said, it all depends what the definition of is is? That's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't telling us, figure out how to kind of, you know, shave the margins and what can you get away with. I mean, remember, Jesus sets up the story to say the guy got fired. The guy lacked character. He was not a man of integrity. He's gone. God is not telling us here to try to play the world's game. This guy lacked character and he's gone. He didn't technically steal. But he was a poor steward. Remember the story I told you about this family whose house and resources we would care for? I mean, if they had come home and they said, Roger, where's all the money? And I said, well, you know, you left a lot of money. You told us to go out to eat. So we went to Ruth Chris. It was great. And they would have said, you know, we thought you were going to buy groceries and cook for the kids or maybe order a pizza. Next time we won't leave so much money. Or better yet, you know, we just, this relationship is over. You know, if you're a person here who goes to work and says, how can I just get by with the least amount of work or the way that you conduct business or conduct your life in general, remember, we are called as Christians to honor God in all that we do, not to try to get by with something. And when it comes to this parable, the point of application is not how do you play the world's game, but we find the application in verse 8. Look at the second part of Luke 16, 8. Jesus says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. When you see this word translated as shrewd, it's the Greek word phronimos. This is a word that means wise, crafty, or cunning. It's a word that was used of Satan when you read in Genesis 3, 1, where it says that Satan was more crafty than all the animals of the field. Now we say, that's a bad word. I don't like that word crafty. Well, remember, it also means wise. The meaning of this word is also prudent. This same word was used of the man in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, where it says the wise man built his house on the rock rather than the shifting sands of the world. Do you remember that parable? And what God says to us is we need to be those who are wise. We need to be those who are prudent. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus uses this same word as well as the same contrast between the sons of the world and the sons of light, those who are believers. There he says, Behold, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Do you see what God is telling us to do? It is not to be dishonest in our behavior, but it is to be wise in understanding the world in which we live and and how we conduct ourselves. This dishonest manager was acting like those in the world. It was all about looking out for number one himself and how he could make his life more comfortable. But for us as Christians, we are told to follow the example of Jesus Christ. We are called to be those who say the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We are called to be those who serve others, who take our life, our resources, and use them for the benefit 
of others. Understanding there is an eternal perspective of helping others to find their way home to heaven. This is the point that Jesus wants us to get out of this parable. He tells us here we can look at the bad example Uh, We can look at this bad man's good example, and what we are called to do is to make the most of the opportunities we have, like using the worldly wealth that we've been entrusted with as stewards, using the worldly wealth we've been entrusted with to help bring people into God's kingdom. This is the purpose of the parable. It's not about the dishonest behavior. It's about understanding the time in which we live is short. And there are people here that we can use what we have to help get home to heaven. That is what Jesus wants us to get from this parable. In Luke 16, 9, it says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Jesus calls money here the mammon of unrighteousness. You know, I often hear people quote that verse in the Bible, and they'll tell me, money is the root of all evil. Have you ever heard that? Money is the root of all evil. And people will sometimes say, Pastor, where where is that verse? And I say, you know, it's in the book of second hesitations. (laughs) Right behind the verse that says, God helps those who help themselves. Now, if you're looking in your Bible for second hesitations, it's not there. Those verses are not in the Bible. Do you know what is actually in the Bible? It's 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. It is the love of money that is a root. You see, money is not immoral. It is amoral, which means it's neutral. Money is not evil in and of itself. It's what we do with money. It's what our attitude is toward money. It's not a sin to be rich and have lots of resources, but it is a sin when those things have us. There are people I know who are multimillionaires who use their money freely They give it to God, they give it to others, they use it for benefits of others. And I also know people who are very poor, that are very coveted. They they covet money and they hold on to it and they think about it all the time. And And even though they have very little, it has a hold of them. You see, what God is telling us is that he has given us resources. And it's up to us what we do with it. It's like grain. It can be used for good to make bread, or it can be used to make alcohol and be abused. It's what we do with money that determines its moral value. As we talk about our love or coveting of money, we need to understand that it's not determined by how big your bank account is. It's determined by our attitude toward it. If you're somebody that that holds on to money and your idea is that you just, you grip it as tight as you can like this, I want you to understand that that is sin. And I also want you to understand that when you do this with your hands, you block God's blessing on your life, don't you? You see, it's like the story of the little girl who went with her mother to the, the old country store. And as they walked in, they did the shopping and they were checking out at the counter and there were these candy jars that are there in the front of the register. It didn't start in our modern times. It goes all the way back. And so what happened is, is the kid was sitting there staring at the candy jar, and the 
clerk was ringing up the bill, uh, he said to the little girl, he reached over and he took the lid off a jar of candy and he said, go ahead, honey, help yourself free of charge. Now the little girl, she kind of steps behind her mother's uh, you know, skirt and she's kind of looking and the man says, what's wrong, honey? Don't you like candy? And she looks out and she nods. Yeah, I like candy. And he says, well, help yourself. And she kind of gets shy again. And finally the man says, come here, honey, open up your bag. And he reaches in and he grabs a heaping handful of candy and he drops it in her bag. Now, as they go outside and they're, they're preparing to leave, the mother says, what, what's wrong with you? I've never seen you get shy like that before. He, he, the mother said, why, why didn't you take the candy when he offered it? And she looked at her mother and she said, Mom, I knew his hands were bigger than mine. <laughs> Friends, may I remind you that God's hands are bigger than ours? And when we grab on to stuff like this, when we hold on to it and want it, what we also do is we block God putting things in our hands. When we hold our hands open and loosely, not only does it hurt a lot less when God pries our fingers open, but it also gives us the ability to receive the blessings that he has for us. As you look at this parable uh, another thing that God wants us to get from this parable is found in verses 10 through 13. Look at those with me. In verses 10 through 13, it tells us, He who is faithful in, very, in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You see, one of the things God wants us to draw from this parable is the understanding that the way that we use the things he has given to us is a test to see if we can be trusted with more things. Have you ever been to a, a, a buffet or a restaurant or something that has one of those big metal urns, you know, that has coffee or tea in it? And if you've ever gone up to it, sometimes you're wondering, is there, is, what, what's in it? Is this coffee or tea if it's not marked, or is there anything left in there? And the only way to tell that, other than taking the lid off and looking inside to see the level, is some of them have one of those sight glasses. Have you ever seen those big little sight glasses that run along the side? And it shows you what's in it and what the level is. And when it comes to the riches in our life, the resources God has entrusted to us, money, material possessions, or things like that, it is like the sight glass to your life. Because what we do with those things shows really what's inside of us, right? The Bible tells us that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And how we use the resources that God has entrusted to us shows really what's going on in our life. You see, I can say God is important to me. But if you really want to know what place God holds in my life, you can do a very quick test. You can look at my calendar, and you can look at my checkbook. Because where I spend my time... And where I spend my money determines what is really most important to me. And so when God gives us resources as stewards, understanding that what we have is not ours but his, it shows really where God is in our life. As you think about the things you have in this life, let me remind you that there are only two things that last for all eternity. It is the souls of men and women 
and it is the Word of God. There are only two things that last for eternity, the eternal souls of people and the Word of God. And what we're told in this parable is to take the things that we have been given and to invest them for the purpose of making friends that we can then help come to know the one who loved them enough to die for them, Jesus Christ, that is revealed in the Word of God and help them get home to heaven so that when we go home to heaven, they will be there as well. When you get home to heaven, will there be people there that you help to hear his word by what you did with what God has given to you? The money you invest in supporting ministries like Wayside or missionaries or, or other endeavors? Will there be people there who know Jesus Christ because you helped through the resources you shared in order to help the gospel to be gotten out? When it comes to the stuff we have in this world, remember that it is not ours. We are simply stewards of what God has entrusted to us. If you look at Luke 14.33, there we're told, So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. As you look at Luke 14.33, I want you to focus on that word, his own if we were reading this in the original Greek text, that word own is at the very beginning of the passage. And the reason for that is that is the place of emphasis. Because this is helping us understand this is an issue of stewardship versus ownership. Friends, do we own anything? No, we don't. There's not a single thing that we have that we really own. It all belongs to God. Stewardship begins when we realize what we get from God is not ours to keep, it is only ours to use. As Ron Blue said, uh, it's not ours to keep, it's only ours to use. As Ron Blue said, stewardship is the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given goals. In his book, Man in the Mirror, Pat Morley says this, if you are the CEO of a, of a company or the owner of your own business, you need to mentally resign from the leadership of your company and give it to Jesus Christ. Similarly, those who are owners uh, of their family as fathers, grandfathers, patriarchs of our clans, mothers, need to relinquish our leadership and give our families to God. In the next service, we're going to dedicate five babies. And I love having these parents come up here with their, their children. And what they are saying is, this is a gift that has been given from God, and we are giving this child back to God. And we are committing to raise this child to know and love the Lord. They are being reminded they are simply stewards of the entrustment of their families. And we need to understand that as well, that we are simply stewards of everything we have from our business to those in our family to even life ourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 tells us this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Did you hear that? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You see, it's not just our wealth, but even our health that belongs to God. I want you to take a breath. Go like this. Everybody breathe in. Are you still alive? It means God's not done with you yet. If he's given you the breath of life, 
He's given you another day to serve him, another opportunity to be used by him. The question is, are you using the time he's given you for his glory? When we understand that we belong to God and not ourselves, friends, it will radically change everything. When we realize we belong to God and not ourselves, if we mistreat our bodies, you know what we're doing? We're misusing what God has entrusted to us. If we live in a non-glorifying way, then we are standing in the way of God using us for his glory. If we take our possessions and we use them for our pleasures and not his purpose, we are being bad stewards. If we don't even own ourselves and it follows, whatever it is that is under our control isn't ours either, right? The talent and the time we have to let us go to work and make money or do things is from God. It belongs to him. You've probably read the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. There in verses 19 through 20, the rich fool says, And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is requested of you. It is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? Who will own what you've prepared? You see, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And if we don't grasp what real stewardship is, then we will be like the rich fool, finding ourselves like him one day, having hoarded what we have, only to find that when we die, we leave it here. There were two friends that went to a funeral of a very wealthy man. And as they were leaving, the one man said to the other, he said, wow, here's a guy who started with nothing, and he died a millionaire. And his friend said, no, he died with nothing. And he said, well, how can you say that? They just said in his memorial that the guy was a multimillionaire. He, he died with millions. And, and the other friend said he might have made millions, but when he died, he wasn't a millionaire anymore. He left it behind. He ended exactly like the poorest beggar does, with nothing. We find that truth in Ecclesiastes 5.15. King Solomon, the richest and wisest man who ever lived, was used by God to write these words. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. You know, of the countless funerals that I have done, I have never once seen a U-Haul attached to the hearse. Have you? <laughs> have you ever seen him pull up to the graveyard pulling the hearse with a U-Haul full of all his worldly possessions? No. We leave it all behind. Now, while we leave all the worldly things behind, God tells us in this passage, there is a way to send something ahead to heaven. There's a way to send something ahead to heaven. It's not our money or material possessions. Rather, it is men and women who we should seek to reach through the things that God has entrusted to us. Now, many of you here are doing these things. You take the position that God has given you at work and you leverage it as opportunities to stand as a witness for Christ in your workplace. Many of you take the money that God has entrusted to you and you give it in support of ministries like Wayside or missions or other uh, ministries outside of the doors of our church. Many of you will take the homes that you've been given and you use them for hospitality. 
and you have individuals over for Bible study, or you host missionaries uh, when they're traveling, or you cook meals for others. There are people in our church who have pools, and they welcome the students over for pool parties, or they take their cars and they use them to, to move the kids around. This next week at spring break, our, our middle school and high school ministries are going to be reaching over 100 kids uh, doing various activities, and many of these parents are opening up their homes to host these kids. Now, if you're thinking, you know, Roger, I'd love to do things like that, but my place isn't good enough for God to use. Is that what you think? You need to remember that your ministry of presence is more important than the prettiness of your place. Karen Maines, in her book, Open Hearts, Open Home, defines the difference between hospitality and entertaining. She says, entertaining says, I want to impress you with my home with my clever decorating, with my cooking. Hospitality, which seeks to minister, says, this home is a gift from my master, and I use it as he desires. Entertaining puts things before people. As soon as I get the house finished, the living room decorated, the house cleaning done, then I will start inviting people. But hospitality puts people first. No furniture will sit on the floor. The decorating may never get done. You come anyway. The house is a mess, but you're friends, so come home with us. You see, entertaining subtly declares this home is mine. It is an expression of my personality. I want you to look, please, and admire. But hospitality whispers, what, what is mine is yours. And what God wants us to remember is, what is ours is his. We don't own anything. And our lives are to be a stewardship. A stewardship that is letting other people know that the things that God has given to us are accomplishing the God-given goals that he has given to us. And the ultimate stewardship is of the gospel itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 tells us this. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that he be found faithful and trustworthy. Friends, as you look at your life today, are you being faithful? Are you one who is taking the things that God has given to you and using them for the goals that God has given to us? As we look at this parable, the unrighteous steward saw the urgency of the situation he was in. And he changed his behavior to prepare for it. And we who are disciples of Jesus Christ should see the urgency of the need around us, as well as the opportunities that God has given to us through the resources he has entrusted to us to get his life-changing message out into the world around us. I want us to close today by showing you a clip. This comes from the movie Schindler's List. If you've ever seen the movie Schindler's List, now I'll warn you, if you're a parent, there are some very graphic scenes in there. Don't go home and rent this movie for your young children unless you want to have a good conversation about things. But as you watch this uh, clip, it's at the very end of the movie. You'll remember that Oscar Schindler was a German industrialist. He was a very wealthy man, and he went into the war making a lot of money 
off the munitions and the other things. Now, he started to sabotage those munitions, which were costing him greatly in his business. And the other thing he did with the, the wealth that had been entrusted to him is he ended up using it to buy the lives of 1,100 Jews who would have been killed in the Holocaust. And as it comes to the end of the movie, as, as the Germans have surrendered and he's about to release these people, this is how Oscar views what he did with his life. as we close in prayer. Father God, would you help us to be those who live with an understanding that the time is short and that, Father, there are people all around us who are lost and perishing. Father, would you help us to realize that people are more valuable than the stuff we've been given. And Lord, may we be those who take the stuff that you've given to us, our money, our material possessions, our time, our talent, and would we use those things, Father, for eternal purposes. Help us, Lord, as we leave here today to be faithful stewards, to be those who share what you've given to us to share the good news of the gospel. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.